1: Of 1994, Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly were all convicted of the murders of Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch, and Michael Moore. It's been a long, slow process over the last several months, breaking down and analyzing both the investigation, the trials, and the convictions of the so-called West Memphis Three. As mentioned last week, my intention before we take our mid-season break. Is to give you as much firsthand inside information as to what was going on during the trials. Last week we heard from Jason Baldwin himself, and this week we're going to get a little better perspective on the conviction of Jesse Lloyd Miss Kelly Jr. Jesse's attorney, Dan Stidham, has agreed to come on the show and walk us through his first-hand account of defending Jesse Miss Kelly. And now, without any further ado, here is now sitting judge Dan Stidham.
0: First of all, let me say uh, how uh, grateful I am to to be with you this afternoon uh, and participating in this podcast. Uh, My name is Dan Stidham. I represented Jesse, Miss Kelly, and and, uh, one of the uh, most infamous uh, crimes to ever take place uh, in the United States, uh, the West Memphis murder case back on uh, May 5th uh, or May 6th, depending on uh, how you want to approach that, in the time of death uh, in 1993. I was the only attorney who worked on the case from beginning to end. So I sort of have a, a, a very unique context for, uh, that I bring to the case. To me, the case did not end with the Alfred plea in 2011. I've continued to work uh, on the case, uh, trying to find who's really responsible for these horrible crimes. And uh, also I've been working faithfully on uh, my memoirs of the case, uh, a book uh, that I've started uh, many years ago. But that's what I've been doing is chasing killers and writing books. Uh, I think the Alfred took book, but um, hard to believe it's been 25 years. And um, the case continues to evolve in, in many ways. So uh, I've learned that writing books is about like uh, trying to get people out of prison it's a long, long game of chess, and you have to plan your moves ahead of time. So that's, that's what I've been doing.
1: Great. And am I right, Dan, are you a judge now?
0: I am. I'm a state district judge for the 17th Judicial District of Arkansas, which right now is comprised of Greene County in the northeast corner uh, of the state, I'm about 80 miles north of West Memphis and about four hours south of St. Louis.
1: All right. Well, let's jump right into your involvement in the West Memphis Three case because you are a unique being. That because you were still representing Jesse Miss Kelly all the way through the Alford plea, correct?
0: Well, towards the end, starting in uh, 2008, my role in the case switched dramatically from from being an attorney involved in every aspect, of day to day participation with the, the defense team, which included a tremendous lineup of fantastic lawyers, uh, to that of being a witness in the case. The Rule 37 hearings uh, started in 2008 and continued over into 2009. And uh, since I was a witness uh, in those hearings and proceedings, I could no longer be both an attorney and a witness at the same time. So I was kind of uh, taken out, and uh, that was a struggle for me because I didn't talk for so long. But um uh, my being a witness was far more important than my being a lawyer there uh, towards the end of the case.
1: And I guess that's a good first question to ask you is, what was it about Jesse's case that that drove you to stay involved for as long as you did?
0: Well, the sheer injustice of it all. And um, I was a very young attorney. I had just turned 30 years old. Uh, when I was assigned the case, I was the only attorney who didn't seek out the case, all the other attorneys ran to uh West Memphis and said, Pick me, pick me and I wasn't. I just got a phone call out of the blue. Uh in fact this entire case has been a series of phone calls out of the blue. <laughs> yeah. But uh that, that particular phone call took place um in early June, a couple of days after Miss Kelly's uh so called confession. And, uh, a circuit judge who was from Perryville, my, my hometown, uh, was on the bench that day and it was his task to appoint lawyers and he thought of me. And, um of course that's why I went to law school is to, uh, represent people who, who need help, uh, in criminal defense. Everybody's entitled to a defense. And, uh, even though at that particular moment in time, I assumed that he was guilty because of the confession, I was torn between Wanting to get involved and thinking this is crazy, and you know, I don't want to touch it with a ten-foot pole, so to speak. And so I went to to my ex-wife, uh, assuming that she would talk me out of it. And uh, unfortunately or fortunately, I looked at it. She said, uh, "Hey, this is why you went to law school. This is your kind of thing. Do it." And so I called the judge back and said, "I'm in." So that's how that's how it all got started. That was the genesis.
1: Now you'd said that at the beginning you thought that Jesse was guilty, and I was. I want the one of the first things I wanted to ask you was, you know, reading all of the transcripts of all the statements Jesse's given, he gave one to you in August. You know, that summer, a couple months after he had confessed, and and my take on that, it looked like you were discussing possible plea bargains with Jesse. At that point, you were kind of repeating back to him what he had said in his confession. At that point, did you still think that he was probably guilty?
0: Yes, um, I had. What I've always referred to as uh, an epiphany, but it didn't come until uh, September of 93. And, um, it finally hit me one day, just like a, you know, uh, someone hit me in the head with a two before, but hey, now I get it. Now I understand what's going on. And everything changed from that moment on. And, uh, with the help of, um, uh, Ron Lax, uh, who was a very talented and, great guy, offered to do some private investigative work for us. He had an office in Memphis, Tennessee, and Nashville. And he hooked me up with uh, Dr. Richard Offshay. And I began to learn what a false confession was and how it happens and why it happens. And at that time, there were probably four or five, uh, maybe six or seven people on the planet that actually understood the dynamics of a false confession how they, how they happened, why they happened, and what you can do to prevent that. And, uh, in September and October and December of 1993, uh, as we moved closer to trial, I, I became uh, the seventh person to understand the dynamics. And the task became, how do I explain this to the jury when it's so hard to to grasp already? I had a background in psychology and sociology from college, so it was, it was it was easier for me than it might be for a layperson to understand. But we lost um, a lot of time that we should have been preparing, and so uh, it set us back tremendously.
1: So in September, you said you had that, that epiphany moment and you realized that it was a false confession. Up to that point, had you even... Really asked Jesse to be done it or not, or how how did that conversation happen when you finally decided we're going to go ahead and plead not
0: guilty and fight this? Well, Jesse and Ms. Kelly is uh, intellectually challenged. Most people don't disagree about that, but there are still a few folks out there, a small minority who, who believe that Jesse is not mentally challenged and but, but he is that's the truth. The truth of the matter was he's intellectually challenged. Back in 1993, we referred to that as mental retardation. In today's uh, world, it's uh, it's intellectually challenged, uh, is the phrase. And um, Jesse Miss Kelly was essentially a five-year-old child. Uh, that was um, uh, the level of his IQ. That was the level of his intellectual capabilities. And, and that made him the perfect patsy for the West Memphis police to Lead down this crazy story that, uh, they believed, uh, Jesse Kelly didn't confess on, on that day. Uh, Gary Gitchell and Brian Ridge confessed. Uh, they put everything into his mouth and he simply parroted it back, uh, with one thing in mind. That was just tell them what they want to hear so I can go home. And, um, that's what led to it. What, what led to the epiphany was I had gotten a phone call, uh, in August from John Fogelman stating that they had found some DNA on a white T-shirt in Mr. and Kelly's, uh Kelly's trailer, and uh, in the trailer park, and it was a perfect match to one of the three victims. And uh, so that, you know, that to me was the icing on the cake. I, of course, filed a motion to have it tested independently, but um, suddenly in September, I uh, had a great trial hearing, Bogman walked up to me and said, Oh, by the way, that's not uh the DNA was not uh one of the victims, it was your, your client's blood. And so just like like a light bulb went off in my head and I uh drove to the jail uh the next day where Jesse was being held and instead of interrogating him like I had been doing for the past several months, uh I just asked him, you know, to tell me why there was blood on a T shirt found in his trailer. And for the first time, Jesse Nisco told me something about what he knew. He actually knew instead of trying to make out something to please me. And, and he told me, that's my blood. I, I throw soda bottles up in the air and break with my fist when I get angry at people. And uh, I wipe the blood on my T-shirt. And uh, it was just, everything changed at that moment. Everything changed. So we began bucking down and getting ready for trial. Because, uh, as I later learned, Jesse actually considered me to be one of the West Memphis police officers. And so every time I'd go talk to him about the case, uh, he would tell me a different version of the story. And he couldn't remember the story because he didn't have all the props that uh, the West Memphis police were using, the photographs of the victims, um, which I think is extremely cruel uh didn't have uh, the newspaper articles or pictures of the victims were in the newspaper And underneath it said uh, the victim buyers, the victim more, the victim branch. And, and if you listen to Mr. Miss confession, you can hear him referring to the victims as the branch and the Moore and the buyers, uh because he's just trying to please his interrogators.
1: At what point did he finally tell you that he didn't actually do it?
0: It was uh, in September of um, '93, and people with intellectual disabilities. There's 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 two types. Um, there's people who suffer from mental illness, and and uh, fortunately, modern medicine provides some uh, measure of hope for folks with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, and, and uh, with medication, they can lead a somewhat normal life. But for someone who's uh, intellectually challenged. Um, there is no cure. they're not going to get better uh they're only going to stay the same and so Jesse Miskelley today is ten years older than I was when i when I tried this case, and he's still the same five year old kid that he was twenty five years ago. There's no cure for that and people like Jesse Miskelley, especially when he was seventeen he's he's a little wiser now because of all the bad things that have happened to him when he when he tries to uh Mask is disability. You know, people like Jesse Ms. Kelly are more likely to, to doubt their own experiences, uh, the things that they've witnessed, the things that they've seen. And, um, people who are normal and can think abstractly, they don't have that issue. But, uh, uh Mr. And, Kelly, and it took me years to understand this and not until it's post conviction. When Dr. Tim Birney, uh, from California, who is an excellent forensic psychologist, he explained to me that uh, Jesse is uh, very, very good at masking his disability. And he calls it cheating to lose. People with uh, mental and intellectual disabilities, they, they cheat their disability so that they don't appear to be uh disabled. And they just pretty much go along with whatever an authority figure says and when you're seventeen and you've you've got a mental uh intellectual disability, then um you're especially malleable to being led through the sort of false confession that uh, exactly what what happened uh in West Memphis. And by the way, I listened to your podcast a couple of weeks ago on my way back from our daughter's law school graduation, uh in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I listened to um I guess it was episode did you say 525? Does that sound right? It's about, about the confession. Yeah, that sounds about right. And uh, I listened to it again last night, uh, 525. And, and I must say that, that your analysis and step-by-step uh, explanation of, of how these words didn't come from Jesse Nitzkelly, they came from Gitchell and Ridge, um, I thought that's one of the best analyses that I've ever, I've ever listened to or, or read. So uh, you did an excellent job in, in sorting through that. I
1: applaud you. No, I, I appreciate that. You know, when we broke it down that way and really took it piece by piece, it t- in my opinion, it became pretty painfully obvious that Jesse didn't demonstrate any kind of knowledge of this crime whatsoever throughout any of the different confessions. And and, and of course, that's the the people that still believe that it was a legitimate conviction and that the the three are guilty. You know, they, they always cite Jesse. Where why would he confess over and over and over again? Uh, and you were there for a lot of those. And one of the big ones was. After he was convicted, and he came back with the, and he supposedly confessed to the police officers in the car. Then you sat down and did the the Bible confession with him. Re put his hand on the Bible. Can you can you kind of walk us through that experience and, and what you were thinking when it was going
0: on? Yeah, that was you know that's one of the things that uh, a lot of people and uh, as you know, there's a wide following uh, with regard to the West Memphis case and various chat rooms and podcasts and things of that nature. Uh, And there's lots of people, I say lots, I think they're a small majority, but they want to hang their hats on this Bible confession. They have no idea what the circumstances were, so I'd like to enlighten your listeners a little bit in that regard. When Jesse left uh, the courthouse that day to be transported to prison, uh, my instructions were to him to to not say anything to these officers about anything that's do with the case. And number two, I admonished the officers, both of them, play county deputies, that they were under no circumstances to talk to my client. And, of course, um, they did the exact opposite. And I've always suspected, though I can't prove it, that they were instructed by the prosecution to do just that. And so, Jesse, uh, being Jesse, will uh, tell you pretty much whatever you want to hear. And so the officers began to explain to him that, uh, he's the only one that's going to go to prison. The other two are going to get off, that you don't testify against him. Um, and that he was going to die in prison and, uh, that, uh, I didn't care about him. That, uh, he couldn't trust me. And it's just so easy to, to, to get him to, to say whatever, uh, he wants to say. So that particular day, uh, I went down to the prison. Uh, with Fogelman and Davis, who were both very, very eager to have his testimony in the second trial, which was coming up in just a couple of weeks. And um for your listeners, and you may remember this as well, there's a scene in Paradise Lost where Fogelman and Davis are meeting with the victim's parents uh, at Brent Davis's office in Jonesboro, mm-hmm. and he's explaining to them that they need Jesse Kelly really bad. And without him, uh, I believe the phrase Brent Davis used was, "We may have a 50-50 shot." It may have been Ogden that said that. So they were desperate to get his testimony, and so, so I sat down with Jesse. And of course, he was all worked up. Uh, he didn't want to be in prison anymore because he was told that this was his only way out. To testify, and and uh, so, if you take the time to read the so-called Bible confession, you'll see that. By the end of the of the tape, when Jesse's confronted with uh, actually having to go into the courtroom and testify under oath, he suddenly decides that he didn't do that anymore. And that is one of the things that Dr. Durning described: people with intellectual disabilities don't understand the rules. They don't understand how court works. They, most of them, the studies have shown, believe they can't uh, lie in court. So. <laughs> So he was faced with that problem. I, I, I want to get out of here, but I want to, I want to do what they want me to do so I can go home. That's, that's, that was his sole purpose throughout the entire process. What do I have to tell you? What do I have to make up? Uh, what do I have to pair it back to you just so I can go home? But when it came right down to it, he didn't want to tell any more lies uh, about Jason and Jesse. And I think he felt bad that he had pulled them into this, this horrible situation. But, the, the, you know, for the background, when I got there and started talking to Jesse, I went back out in the hall, and I asked uh, the prosecutors for two things. I said, I need a Bible, and I need a crime uh, scene map with all the places where the bodies were discovered uh, whited out, so I just have nothing but a, a blank map of the crime scene. <laughs> and um so they bring me both. So, if you, and it's been a while since I've looked at the transcript for the Bible Confession, but basically what I'm doing <laughs> is asking Jesse to show me where everything happened. And um he gets it all home. He says the bodies were thrown in where the big pipe goes across the bayou, and that uh, he didn't get in the water because it was over his head. The water was deep, and of course, the real facts are the kids were found Upstream, if you will, uh, in a smaller creek that fed into the bayou. And, uh, as you look at the pictures of the officers, uh, recovering the body, they're standing in about knee deep water. Uh, maybe a little higher than that, but, um, uh, it became clear to me that, uh, Jesse didn't know anything about what happened that day. He was merely, his story would change based on the testimony he heard in the courtroom, uh, or what his new interrogator would be telling him. To say, and, um, uh, that sensed it for me. And I asked him, all right, if you, if you were there and this really happened, give me something that I can prove it with. And he's brought up this, uh, whiskey bottle issue. And so, uh, he said, I broke a whiskey bottle under an overpass there on Interstate I 55 and I 40. And this is where a lot of non start hanging their hat again, is, uh, we, Prosecutors and I and, and uh, Gary Gitchell got a flashlight and we went to the overpass and started looking for whiskey bottles. And we not only found uh, one whiskey bottle, we found thousands of whiskey bottles. I mean, they were everywhere. They littered everywhere. We actually uh, rousted uh, a homeless person who was sleeping under the overpass. And so um, that didn't corroborate anything for me. Um, to in fact, it just strengthens the idea that uh, there's no way to corroborate this crazy story that Jesse Mitzkeller told. And as you pointed out in one of the subsequent podcasts that I listened to, I think you very astutely pointed out that uh, this is not a series of confessions. It's all the same, just different variations of, of the false narrative. Right. And um, and um that, that's exactly what it is. but. There's a quote, you know, I probably will get it wrong, but it's, it's one of my, uh, favorite quotes. And for those who believe, uh, no explanation is necessary and for those who don't, no explanation is possible. And that's kind of how things go down. Mm-hmm. People want to either look at the facts and interpret the facts correctly or they want to look at something they can't understand. And, uh, you know, when I speak all around the country and, uh, one of the, Slides in my PowerPoint is uh, a slide about uh, that old Stevie Wonder song, Superstition. One of the lyrics in in the song is, uh, when you believe in things that you don't understand, it creates problems, it's superstition. And that's what happened in this case. Everybody jumped to this conclusion that this was a satanic ritual and uh, nothing could be further from the truth. There's never been a satanic ritual ever documented on the planet, ever. And FBI has tried to do it In an exhaustive study uh, The study's been replicated in the UK And there's just no such thing as satanic ritualistic homicide
1: It is Ryan here And I have a question for you What do you do when you win? One thing that I really noticed when, when he did the the so-called Bible confession with you is the first part, when you actually sat back and let him narrate his day and talk through his day, he began his air quote confession by describing the interaction with the police at the trailer park that night that happened between 6.30 and 7 p.m. And that part he gave pretty vivid detail. I mean, I took some plaque for it from the the, the nons of people that, that think they're guilty but to, to me, that that confession with you seemed to alibi him more than anything else, because that's the only thing where he gave vivid detail was that interaction with the police.
0: That police officer who encountered Jesse Miskelly in Federal Park that night at six thirty uh, committed perjury on the witness stand. He was there, and people saw him there, and people saw him talking with Jesse at the, at the squad car. But he swore under oath uh, that he never saw Jesse Miskelly the whole time he was there investigating. Uh, the call that he'd received, and that's the kind of thing we see throughout the entire case is everyone, from the police to to the prosecution to the judge was willing at every twist and turn to do whatever it was necessary to preserve this regime of truth that they had had adopted. And it didn't matter that the facts didn't match up. It didn't matter that uh, you know it was parent to, uh, to anyone who look at the evidence that um, this is not what happened it couldn't have happened that way but um, it uh, I, I, I hesitate to use the, the analogy of a lynching but it really was uh, that kind of mentality I mean people wanted this wrapped up in a nice neat package and these three kids uh, to get the death penalty and um, that's what they wanted and there was this fervor that uh, was created and um uh, being a young, naive uh, criminal defense lawyer who, uh, I might add, as many people know, was marching slowly towards my first jury trial as, as uh, first chair, it was pretty overwhelming. But I was able to get two of the most uh, respected and leading experts uh, in police interrogation techniques and in false confessions. But uh, Judge Burnett uh, limited their testimony so much that it kept us from being able to uh, pull out a victory uh, at trial.
1: And that's the thing that I wanted to talk to you about next is the challenges you had with Judge Burnett's rulings before and during the trial, limiting what you could talk. So if, if you could talk a little bit about the the challenges that you had going into this trial, other than being, as you said, very green. It's what you said was your first jury trial, sitting first chair.
0: Yes. Um, I had worked on several murder cases, including a capital murder uh, case while I was in law school. I was a law clerk for W.H. Taylor, a well-known lawyer in northwest Arkansas. He was uh, not quite as young as I was when I was involved in this guy's case, but uh, uh, he was a young lawyer as well, and I learned more about practicing law from him than I ever did in law school. But um I got to work on quite a few high profile cases and one involving the death penalty and, and um so I I had a lot of hands on experience and uh he taught me how to pick a jury by looking at uh, the potential jurors' bumper stickers. So uh, huh. these days these days lawyers do it on Facebook. You can tell more about someone on their Facebook page than you can from a bumper sticker, so it's kinda made the process easier uh, when you're, when you're picking a jury, but, um, I I had some experience, but this was my first jury trial. Burnett, as a former prosecutor, uh, never really loosened that role, I guess would be a good way to describe it, after he took the bench. And at the time, it wasn't so obvious to me, but looking back as a older lawyer now, looking back at, uh, my younger self, I, I realized that, uh, it's very, very clear, uh, especially when you go back and look at the raw footage of the trials, that um Burnett was part of the prosecution team, and it's very, very clear now looking back. And to give you an example, I uh, was trying to introduce a police report during the trial, and of course they're inadmissible as hearsay, and uh to my huge surprise, neither Feldman nor or Brent Davis objected, and so... uh I started to exhibit this to the jury, and uh, the point of it was is they were trying to establish that that uh, Jesse and Ms. Kelly knew things that only someone who was there could have known. And I'm introducing a police report where uh, it definitely showed that all this was out in the community. Everybody knew about it. So when the prosecutors didn't object, uh, as I was starting to walk over to the, to the jury to sh- hand them the document to exhibit Uh, Judge Burnett stopped me and said, are you sure you guys don't want to object to this? It's hearsay. (laughs) 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 And I said, no, Your Honor, they said they had no objection. And and he said, are you sure you don't want to object to this? And and, uh, so finally he relented, and I actually got to to show it to the jury. But that's what I faced throughout the entire process. I've always told people that the only two motions that I won during the entire trial was the change of venue, which was obviously uh, a slam dunk. Uh, and the other one was I asked to go to lunch early during the trial, which he granted. Um, and those are the only two motions that, uh, that I can recall having any success on.
1: Right. And then, so in, in one big one that I noticed, I mean, I noticed a lot, obviously, but what really stuck out to me was what you had mentioned earlier Burnett's ruling about limiting the testimony of your experts. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how that went down?
0: You know, Miss Kelly had never gotten the best of anything out of life his his first seventeen years, and I was determined to change that. And so I went out as a young, inexperienced lawyer, and somehow uh, I convinced these two guys to come in uh, even though I couldn't pay them. they both read the uh, confession and all the officer's notes, all the documentation uh, that I had in my file, and they immediately said, "Oh my God." Kid is innocent. Uh, I'm coming out to help, and I said well, I can't pay you. All I can do is ask the court to reimburse you after the trial's over. Man, they, they both said we don't care. This kid's innocent, and we're we're coming out. And uh, there were other experts that I was not successful in in obtaining. I tried to get park beats, a friendly psychologist to come in. I couldn't get past the secretary without a fifteen thousand dollars up front, <laughs> uh, which of course I didn't have. But, uh, these two guys, uh, came in on their own dime, and I hadn't heard the testimony in, in a long time, but I was listening to the, the podcast last night, and, uh, I think it was the follow-up to the one we were discussing earlier, I guess 525A, and at the end of the podcast, you actually played, um, the tape, which I assume is from one of the HBO films, uh, where Warren Holmes is testifying, and, um... Any time I get close to scoring points with Mr. Holmes, uh, the prosecutors would stand up. And last night when I was listening to it, uh, Burnett stood up and objected because, uh, I asked Mr. Holmes to describe the characteristics of someone who's prone to give a false confession. And their objection was, uh, Mr. Holmes uh, was not a psychologist. And of course, that's not a proper objection. And so Burnett, Says, "Are you objecting on the basis of lack of foundation?" And of course, the data says yes, and of course, then he shut me down. It was very frustrating. I don't know if you can sense the frustration in my voice as I asked to approach the bench. But, but uh, there were numerous occasions where it, would, where it would take place like that. And ultimately, with Mister Holmes, I got in most of what what I needed, except for polygraph, of course. And uh, I argued unsuccessfully that that should have been admitted. If the police are going to use a polygraph to trick someone into uh, giving a false confession, the jury ought to be entitled to have that information, especially if you have perhaps the most uh, qualified expert in the world on polygraph sitting there under oath testifying that he'd the polygraph. The only question he was showed any uh, deceit on was, have you ever done drugs? Uh, that was powerful testimony, and Burnett knew if that got in, it would win and I do believe, even to this day, that uh, had Offshay been allowed to testify and uh, had Holmes been allowed to testify, we would have gotten an acquittal. And I can base that on some, on some facts. There was a lot of things that went on uh, during uh, deliberations that uh, came out uh, later on that made it very clear that uh, we, were, we were very close to convincing the jury that Mr. Mitch Kelly gave a false confession. Yeah, no. one, one of the things that happened, and uh, I didn't mean to interrupt. I apologize, but um, we did a proffer, and proffered, you know, what um, Mr. Holmes would have testified to, uh, if the judge would have allowed it, and we did a proffer into the record of what Dr. Offshay would have testified to, but the jury wasn't in the courtroom. They had been taken out to the jury room, and after the proffers were given. We took a recess, and people started walking up to me in the courtroom, reporters, spectators, and they were all going, oh, my gosh, you're going to win this case. And I said, well, (laughs) the jury wasn't in here to hear that. Uh, You heard it, but they didn't, and the jury's only as good as the information it's allowed to hear. And so uh, it was very, very, very frustrating. And so my strategy became... You know, I could see the train coming down the tracks. Uh, I always thought at every step of the, of the, of the case that I was, I had a chance to win. I really did. And looking back now, uh, 25 years later, I, I realized the train was coming down the tracks and it was going to take me a while to derail it. But, um, I started setting little traps that I thought maybe an appellate court might uh, grasp in order to fix this problem. And that's just, uh, it became a, an 18 year, 78 day game of chess, but, uh, ultimately, um, I was able to, to win. And I'm not trying to suggest even for a second that it's I who, who won this case. Uh, there, there are lots of people who came forward and, but for them, they would still be in prison today. And the list is long. And I've, every time you start naming names, you, you're always prone to forget someone who was important, but, Taking that risk, um, you know, people like uh, Eddie Vedder, uh, for example, who really got this case moving uh, when it had stalled out. Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings fame, who did uh, West of Memphis, uh, along with Fran Walsh, his partner, who just is one of the nicest people I've ever encountered. I, I really love spending uh, what little time I could with her uh, when the movie was screened at Sundance. Monona John Filbourn, uh, who was the chief architect of the legal team, the defense team, uh, just an amazing lawyer. I've never, I've never encountered a lawyer who's got gears that uh, I never thought about even having. He's, he's that amazing. Um, the list goes on and on. But after uh, I, I forget Joe Burlinger and Bruce Janovsky, without them, uh, none of the others would have been possible. Eddie Vedder was never seen. Uh, the, the films would have never, uh, been pushed to get involved in the case, uh, and so, um the HBO films and, um uh, my good friends, Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sinofsky, unfortunately now passed, uh, without them, we would have never gotten them out of prison. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell.
1: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can you touch on specifically, uh, and I think I recall from the the transcripts, but what did the judge hear in the proffer that the jury didn't hear regarding Holmes and Offshay? Well, what part of their testimony was not allowed to be presented because of Burnett's ruling?
0: Well, Holmes was not allowed, as, as the podcast pointed out that I listened to last night, the follow-up to the, the confession uh, podcast. Uh, he shut Holmes down immediately about the characteristics of someone who would give a false confession. And, of course, that would be someone of uh, low intelligence, uh, low intellect, uh, intellectually challenged, uh, someone who's young, the, basically, the template of Jesse Miss Keller. Of course, he also was not allowed to testify about the polygraph, which are absolutely important. And I, and I thought I had provided some good cases from the US Supreme Court, uh, one of which was an Arkansas case that says anything that suggests that the defendant is innocent should be allowed in court, even though the scientific reliability of it may not be as uh, up to snuff as would, would be expected. If the, if the police can use this to prove that you're guilty or to coerce you into uh, giving a confession, then why shouldn't you be allowed to provide evidence to the contrary? And uh, I still think uh, that's terrible. If they're not going to let uh, people uh, who are defending themselves in court use the polygraph, they shouldn't let people use the polygraph, uh, let the police use the polygraph. Uh, and I've seen some crazy stuff over the years from People using um, uh, this voice synthesizer nonsense where they can tell you that you're lying because your voice synthesizer pattern on the laptop is telling them that you're lying. And uh, that craziness to uh, actually have them put their hand on a copy machine and, and take a copy uh, of their hand and then look at the hand and say, Yep, you're lying. Uh, just a new little trick that uh, right. <laughs> they want to use. So, I mean, it's just, um and the read technique of interrogations, which is still widely used, is the worst thing that ever happened with regard to police interrogation tactics. It, it creates um, false confessions, just by its very nature. And um I've been struggling to uh, get the read technique abolished for the last 25 years, and People are starting to come around and realize that, that, it, that it's a problem, but it's, it's one of the chief uh, problems. But getting back to Offshay's testimony, he was not allowed to tell the jury that, in his opinion, Ms. Kelly's statement was involuntary and coerced, and thus a false confession. He was never allowed to give his conclusions about the case, which were absolutely essential to our defense. Had he been allowed... Uh, or had the jury been allowed to hear his testimony unfettered, which was admissible by all standards uh, at the time, I think the jury result would have been uh, different. I think we would have gotten an acquittal. I know there's a lot of people out there who, who think I'm uh, deranged for, for making that bold statement, but it, I can actually back it up with some, some facts. So uh, it, that was crucial. And, of course, Burnett knew that, and that's why I didn't let it come in. And I found it uh extremely ironic that a self proclaimed satanic expert, a retired police officer, uh I believe is from Ohio, who had a mail order PhD, uh he was qualified as an expert to testify about occult ritual uh satanic killings. And um uh, Judge Burnett said from the bench that um even a third grader who has specialized knowledge about, uh, issues before a jury can be qualified as an expert. And he qualified Dale Griffiths as an expert on satanic crimes. Where, uh, in my trial, I had a Pulitzer Prize winning social psychologist from a little known university out west, uh, called UC Berkeley who wasn't qualified as an expert. So I just, I find that, uh, so ironic that Judge Burnett was willing and let in anything that would help the prosecution to keep out anything that might uh, cause problems for the prosecutors. That's all there on, on on video for everybody to see.
1: Right. And, and wasn't part of his reasoning or the entirety of his reasoning that he gave for not allowing Afshay give his actual conclusion was because he said, Judge Burnett had said that the testimony or the statement was credible. And so he wouldn't lo- allow an expert to come in and say that it wasn't
0: credible. That's the logic that he used, but, but um, that's not the law. <laughs> right. Um, the the law says that uh, the judge decides whether to suppress the statement or not. And he ruled that the statement was coming in, which, of course, was no surprise to us. But that doesn't mean you can't attack the confession the circumstances in which it was obtained, and uh, that's part of the states proving their case beyond a reasonable doubt. It didn't say, uh, his ruling didn't say we couldn't attack the confession, and by using experts who were qualified, chip away at, at how the, the confession was obtained, uh, whether or not it was a false confession, whether it was uh Mitchell's confession and Richard's confession, or whether it was Jesse Ms. Kelly's confession. And am so I just don't believe that was the correct interpretation of the law. And unfortunately, the Arkansas Supreme Court didn't uh, agree with my argument in that regard.
1: Okay. And the, the last thing that I want to ask you about this case is just, just kind of summarily, um, you've, you've made it crystal clear that you, you have always believed in Jesse Ms. Kelly's innocence, and you fought for him at trial after trial. How do you think that this case has shaped you in the rest of your career, both as an attorney and now as a judge?
0: Well, that's a good question. And, and, um, for many years, I, I was never willing to to kind of talk about that kind of stuff because it's painful to relive some of the, some of the things that have happened over the course of the last 25 years. And my marriage didn't uh, emerge through this. My kids suffered for it. Bad things uh have happened to me, threats on my life, things of that nature. But um I I was asked that very same question in April two thousand fourteen. I agreed to speak at the Baltimore Public Schools. I was invited out there by a teacher who's an amazing teacher. Uh, his name is Joel Brusowitz at uh Catonsville High School. And A (laughs) 16-year-old high school student asked me that question, how how has this case affected you? And uh, it stunned me because you're now the second person who's asking that question. But um, I I, I didn't know what to say because I've just never been asked that question, nor had I been willing to talk about it. And so that's sort of what my book is about. I'm kind of opening my, myself up, and I talk about struggles. The book is not so much a retelling of the West Memphis case because everybody knows uh, what happened and as far as the, what occurred during the trials and uh, the Alpha plea and how that happened. And, and Actually, a lot of people don't understand how that happened. That's one of the goals of my book is to explain that. But that 16-year-old high school student uh, brought me to my knees, so to speak, And over the course of the next couple of months, I began to realize how important it was to share that aspect. So this, this book is, uh, I don't sound spooky like Aaron Hutchison spooky, but, but, uh, nobody really knows what happened to me because I was there every day, uh, while this case was going on. And so it's sort of like the movie Titanic, which, you know, was a great film, but some people were reluctant to go to the theater to see it because. A boat sank. I mean, you know, that there's going to be a boat sinking, and uh, or the movie Lincoln. You know, a lot of people didn't want to go see that because the president gets shot. You know, we get shot, and it changes the course of history. But but uh, what both films have done is they have laid a background story of what was going on in the background that people don't really know anything about. Now, part of that is what happened to me. Part of that is the misconduct of people who were involved in the case. And the fact that they were never brought to atone for, for those sins, uh, they plea took that away. They plea also kept, uh, the Westminster City for being compensated for their wrongful incarceration and wrongful convictions. That also robbed me of, uh, a lot of redemption that my soul desperately needed. I'd always imagined myself walking into the Coliseum like Russell Crowe and, and, uh, the gladiator. And I was going to smite my enemies and walk around with their heads on my my sword and and uh, win this case a trial and win it outright and that's what what had happened and I really really believe had we gotten a new trial and that's why of course the offer plea took place but uh, the first draft of the book by the time of, I hired uh, Tom is not new to the case Tom McCarthy that my co-author that I just uh, signed the we're working out the final details, but we've agreed in principle for him to come on as a co-author. Uh, the first draft, uh, I, I was so bitter and angry because I was still bitter and angry about all the things that happened. In fact, uh, one of the, the persons who was involved in the case of Kali commented on one of the chapters I sent him about uh, his particular role. He said, Dan, why are you so angry? And I didn't realize it uh, that I was so angry, but now looking back, Um, I'm glad this process is is, uh, evolved because I'm I'm not as angry as I used to be, and there's a few reasons for that. But um, I think people who ultimately do decide that they they want to know the whole story, they want to hear the truth. uh, When they if they do go buy the book, and I hope they do, and we hope to have it done next year and published next year, uh, I think they'll be very interested in knowing what really happened because there's a lot of things that people. I've never heard that I'll be discussing in the book, and I hope maybe you'll have me back on after the book is published so that we can discuss those things. My contracts uh, keep me from being able to talk about those things at at this very moment, but uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, things that that are told that have never been told before about this case. That People will be talking about 300 years from now, just like we talk about the Salem-witch trials, the Arkansas-witch trials. It's something that hasn't lost its luster. People are still talking about this. And those kids in Baltimore weren't even born yet in 1993, and they're just as excited and interested in this case and the outcome. And what they see plainly as a wrongful conviction that some people who were there and actually saw it happen still can't wrap their minds around the facts, the true facts.
1: The students you're talking about in Baltimore, is that some of the pro bono work that you do?
0: Well, I talk about the case. I travel. Uh, people invite me to speak. I speak on college campuses, law schools, professional organizations, and uh, I, I've always kind of hesitated to do high schools because of the nature of the crimes are just so uh, horrifying that uh, it's hard to talk to them, you know, uh when I, when I speak uh to professional organizations and, and adults, you know, I use the graphic photos uh, to illustrate points and I obviously, don't feel comfortable doing that in front of high school students. So, but these students are so excited and, and thrilled at this case. Uh, uh, Joe Bruselas, their teacher, keeps inviting me back uh, year year after year. I've been six times in four years. In fact, I just made a visit uh, this past April, a couple months ago, and it's always exciting. And uh, the question is that these kids are are, are are really kind of intimidating because they just break it down. And I don't know if that's because they're kids, but they're really excited. And I, I have a tremendous faith in the future of our world. And some days you wake up and watch the news and, and there's not a whole lot to be uh encouraged by. But these kids, the future prosecutors, future lawyers, defense lawyers, judges, police officers, uh If I can have impact on one of them, it's it's worth uh, the effort and I enjoy it so much. People have been asking me ever since uh, the HBO films came out uh, from time to time to to look into cases involving their relatives, their sons, their daughters. You know, I don't proclaim to be an expert in anything but my unique experience in this case, but... uh, because of uh, all the work I've done, I've, I've become a, what I refer to, I guess, as a quasi-expert in a lot of things forensic. I know who to refer people to. Uh, and I've met a lot of interesting people and got to work with some amazing forensic pathologists and other experts. So I, I'm able to, I can't practice law but, because I'm a full-time judge, but I can evaluate cases and, most of the time I can come to the conclusion that they're guilty and I don't want to get interested in something like that. But occasionally I'll find someone that, uh, got a raw deal just like the West Memphis 3 did. And so I'm eager to help and it's pro bono. I don't charge a fee. I can't charge a fee and I wouldn't even if I could because, um, what Offshane Holmes did for me, they flew to Arkansas on their own down to help a kid named Jesse Miskelli and they saved his life. And, uh, so it's hard for me to say no, uh, sometimes, uh, I'm reviewing a case right now from South Carolina that I've been working on for some time that, uh, uh, life is challenging and sometimes, uh, we get distracted. And so I've been working on it longer than I really would like. But, um, you know, uh, one thing I've learned about this case in life is that uh, we don't get to choose the things that happen to us, but we do get to choose how we respond to them. And uh we can tuck our tail and run and hide and try not to think about things that are that are horrifying and we can dust ourselves off and pick ourselves up and keep moving forward and playing the game of chess and, and that's kinda how I approach life. And uh, that's certainly how I approach my work in the West Memphis case and uh and I'm still looking for the killer and uh I hope I find him and the sooner the better.
1: Hopefully, all of you enjoyed the interview and also got something out of hearing the firsthand information directly from Dan. I personally admired Dan Stidham for a long time because of his continued support and representation of Jesse Miss Kelly, even though he wasn't getting paid throughout the trial, and it took years for him to get a fraction of what he was owed from the state. Nonetheless, Dan has always stood by Jesse's side. Continuing with our theme of getting first-hand information from the people involved in this case before we take our mid-season break, next week we're going to move on to our third defendant with an interview with Damian Eccles. Next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com designed and created our Season 5 logo. A special thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month We also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the -the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833.